we've also been working here in November on a series called Give Church a Second Chance. And I'm not sure if you've noticed this before, but sometimes churches and Christians aren't always known for getting along. This can be displayed in some big and serious ways, but also some silly and absurd ways as well. The blogger Tom Rayner had this, uh, this uh, Twitter survey a few years ago asking for people to, to give real-life examples, things that are true that happened about some of the silly ways that Christians tend to fight. And he came up with his 25 favorites. I want to share some of those with you this morning. Again, these things have actually happened. There was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. <laughs> a fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. <laughs> Vastly different ideas. There was a time where a deacon accused another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and deciding to settle the matter in the parking lot. And I can actually think of some less healthy ways of settling conflict. There was a church dispute on whether or not to install a restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. I just want to know why they weren't there already. (laughs) Or the time there was a church argument and a vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. Or a 45-minute argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, or two, three, or four drawers. There was also a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. I just want to know who took those pictures. (laughs) A petition to have all church staff clean-shaven. And I don't don't want any of that around here, okay? Let's just, I'm going to get out in front of it and say it's not going to end well. Unless you want me to look 16. A dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the church service. Probably coming from a different church background than ours. There was a dispute over whether, uh, sorry, no, a big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. Do you want to know how this was resolved? Somebody donated a dime. (laughs) Issue is gone. A dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of just grape juice. (laughs) Because we know in Scripture that they drank grape juice (laughs) at the Last Supper. Okay, business meeting argument over whether a church should purchase a weed whacker or not. It took two business meetings to, have, to be resolved. There was an argument over what type of green beans the church should serve. My wife would give you the answer to that argument, and the answer is none. No green beans. Two churches reported fights over the type of coffee, which I believe. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. The other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like coffee too. Okay. There was major conflict when the youth borrowed a crock pot that, no one, that had not been used for years. Silly youth. An argument arrived on whether the church... <laughs> sorry, this is my favorite one, or one of them. An argument arrived on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. <laughs> it's too good. I mean, come on. An argument over who had the authority to buy postage stamps for the church. And this, and this one was also my favorite. A disagreement over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing. <laughs> there was a church member who was chastised for bringing vanilla syrup to the coffee server because it looked too much like liquor. <laughs> or an argument over who in the church had access to the copy machine. Or some members who left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. 
few more. There was an argument over whether or not to have gluten-free communion bread or not. A dispute over whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts since black is the color of the devil. How many people are wearing black here? I thought, I thought it was red. But anyway, a fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday every week. Or an argument over whether the fake dusty plants should be removed from the podium. Listen, these are ridiculous things, but they are all things that in some way, shape, or form threaten the unity of the church. And, and I think it's, it's good to be able to look at some of these things that are absurd and call them for what they are. But it's also important to recognize that much division that happens in the church is not nearly as lighthearted as we might think that list to be. And the reality is that church conflict is personal, it's messy, and it's traumatic. And really today we are going to look at what happens or how we should respond when the place that God has designed to be unified becomes a place of division. And I think I want to get out in front of the fact that when we talk about this theme in our community now, it's impossible not to think of the fairly recent church split that happened at Southland. When a church is that big and that influential, it's going to be the thing that's going to come to mind. And so I want to frame this the right way for us. I want to let everybody know that this sermon is not intended to poke holes at, that group, at either of these groups. I've had a good chance to talk to leadership at Southland and at Crossview since that those churches have become two different entities, and I have a lot of ongoing respect for the leaders and the pastors of those places. I have a lot of ongoing respect for those who are still churching at both of those faith communities. In particular, Southland, when they presented to our ministerial their side of the story of why the split took place, they did it in such a way where they said, these are the lessons that we have learned the hard way, and we want to extend to you all the opportunity to learn from this experience so that we can stop it from happening again. And I really appreciated that humble and kingdom-oriented stance. So nothing that I say here is meant to uh, throw shade in their direction or someone who goes to those churches. The sermon is also not intended to downplay the personal impact of those who lived through either that split or a church split somewhere else in the past. And again, starting on a lighthearted note is nothing, not at all to say that, that this is not a deeply personal thing. I know there are many of you who were, who were affected and, and had gone to that church and had walked through that time of conflict and even that time of division. And I want to say that I'm sorry that that has been part of your experience and I don't take that situation lightly at all. And if you are not someone who was directly affected, you all know somebody in your life who was affected by this. And some of these uh, consequences were, were maybe you could have seen them coming, but there's many different ripple effects when a church goes through a situation and a divide like that. So if the sermon is not meant to point fingers and not meant to take this lightly, what is it meant to do? It's intended for us to learn from Scripture about God's design for the unity of His people and how our behavior can help or hinder that design. And so my hope is that at the end of this sermon, all of us who have been hurt by division in the church would find good reason to overcome some of that hurt and disillusionment and give church a second chance. So, of course, none of this is going to be possible if you hear my opinion on church unity. So I want to direct our attention to the Word of God. In particular, we're going to find home base here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. This has been a very well-known and popular place to draw from the Word of God on the topic of church unity. But let me read these first seven verses for you. You can follow along in your own Bible. The words will also be displayed on the screen. Paul writes this. 
I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift." So what do we learn from a passage like this? Well, the first thing that jumps out to me is that the unity of the Spirit is a God-given gift. It's not a human construction. We can't make this unity appear. We can't conjure it up. We can't um, put it together through good behavior and through wise decisions. There's nothing in our own power that we can do to make this happen. If we are to look for biblical unity, then we recognize from the very outset that it is of God, and it is from God, freely given to us. And so if we are thinking about this as something that we do on our own, then we're getting off on the wrong foot. It is important to have the proper posture and understanding. The unity that we seek after is from God, and it is freely given to us, his people. It is of the Spirit, not of the church. And if we think it depends on us, then we are already doomed to fail. And yet we also recognize that we are asked to cooperate. So in response to this gift of unity, we are called to maintain the unity that we have been given. It is from God, freely given to us as people through the Spirit, and God gives us this unity and says, now take good care of it. And I love this word, maintain. When I think of maintenance, I'm automatically drawn to how we're supposed to maintain our vehicles. And I think back to my second year of Bible school, I had a roommate who was from northern Minnesota. And so he he got this old beater that he could just drive to and from uh, school and home so he could go home for long weekends. He didn't know very much about cars. And that proved to be the case when one weekend he was a day or two late from coming back home. And he comes back and sits in the cafeteria. I'm like, Tyler, where have you been? And he sits down and says, well, I learned that apparently cars are a big fan of oil. So what happened is this old car was burning a little bit of oil, but he wasn't very good at checking the oil level, wasn't very good about putting new oil in. And eventually that car engine just seized into one big block and he couldn't go anywhere anymore. The whole thing was shot because he didn't maintain the car the way that it was designed to be. And I think of someone on the opposite end of that spectrum, uh, my wife's grandmother, who is now 98 years old, and she is meticulous at taking care of the things that are given to her. So when she decided a few years back to quit driving, she sold her Chevy Malibu to one of her great-grandkids, and that thing looked like it could have rolled out right out of the display room. That thing was cleaner than clean, impeccable. She kept such good care of it. Even around the same time, she gifted us an old iPad that it was, was generations old at this, point, uh, at this point, but I had been into the Apple store and seen new iPads in worse condition than the one she gifted to us. She is just so meticulous at caring for and maintaining the things that are given to her. And the question before all of us, are we going to take that same type of intentional care for the unity that we have been given? The truth is we maintain the things that we care about. So is our togetherness, our unity that God has given us important? Is it important enough for us to make it a priority and to take meticulous care of maintaining it? One of the reasons I like to draw our attention to Ephesians 4 
is that Paul gives us this important starting point where this is the unity of the Spirit given to us, and then you take care of it. I also believe that he gives us some good ways in which we can live to do this well. He says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So do you want to take care of this unity? Well, live this way. We can accomplish this by exercising first and foremost humility. Walk in a manner in which worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. And I think we can point to another letter of Paul to the church in Philippi in Philippians 2 verses 1 to 4 where he really explains in detail what type of humility he's asking for. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So again, here, just like Ephesians, the context, the backdrop of what Paul is teaching is this oneness, this togetherness, this unity of God for God's people. How do we do this? How do we maintain it? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I've mentioned this before. I love the teaching on humility because humility is a very simple concept to understand, to simply count others as more significant than yourselves. So easy to get to understand, so difficult to live out in truth. So I am convinced that if we are all able to live this way, if we day in and day out in our relationships, and especially with one another here at church, if we are putting other people before us, if we consider them more important than us, if we look out after their interests first, and I believe we will do a wonderful job at maintaining unity. But this is so hard. We are so bent in our human nature to consider ourselves first. That is our natural and default mindset. And we need to continue with God's help to work at the humility that Paul describes for us to live out. Now notice that maintaining this unity of this church, and notice that trying to strive for this humility is not about equality. This isn't about being equal. It's about inequality. It's about putting other people before you, better than you, over you more important than you. However you want to conceive of that, if we think of unity as just being equal, we fall a half step short of the way that the Bible defines what we are trying to live out and trying to do. Put other people ahead of you. Paul goes on to describe that it's not only humility which helps us maintain this unity, it's also a sense and a spirit of gentleness. Now, the Greek word for gentleness, praus, is the same word used by Jesus in the Beatitudes where he says in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so the sense of gentleness is really the idea of meekness. And I think we often get a wrong idea of meekness. We think that it means being a doormat or, or not being able to stand up for ourselves or having no backbone, but that's not the, the picture of what this word means. Meekness really means to have a great amount of power reined in and under control. We get this picture or this visual of a team of horses that that is full of all this potential energy and might, and yet they are reined in under control and are only responding to strict commands according to what they need to do at any given time. I really appreciate this quote from Francis Foulkes. 
who says that meekness is the spirit of one who is so absorbed in seeking some worthy goal for the common good that he refuses to be deflected from it by slights, injuries, or insults directed at him personally or indeed by personal considerations of any kind. Meaning we are meek when we have all the power and authority given to us so consumed towards a common goal that all those things that seem to distract us to the side, we we don't let them bother us. We keep the big thing the big thing. And we don't allow these smaller things, even though they might seem important at the time, to derail us from what God has asked us to do. And so if we have a picture of a team of horses under control but full of power, we also think that they have these blinders where they're not overly concerned about what's to the left or to the right. They're mostly concerned on what's in front of them, which in the context of church is maintaining this unity, striving for the common goal of seeking God's kingdom and his glory together. Let us not be hindered by side issues. And then Paul wraps up this by saying that we don't, we're not only to have humility, and meekness, but also patience and bearing with one another in love. And I have now combined those two into one idea, though you could consider them separately. There's another quote that I have from Thomas Kingsmill Abbott who says, being patient and bearing with one another involves bearing with one another's weaknesses, not ceasing to love one's neighbors or friends because of those faults in them which perhaps offend or displease us. So we need to be patient in the imperfections of those around us. So if our unity is to be this human construction, which it ought not to be, but if we strive for that, and then, then all of a sudden it means we don't have any place for weakness because that's a threat to our community. And if all of a sudden our unity is now based on us having a lack of weaknesses, then we are again doomed to fail. When we live life together, our imperfections will show, and that's part of God's design for community when we give it space and room to graciously be there. I have often actually preached from Ephesians here a few different times for some of the wedding sermons that I've done. And I love getting to the point where it talks about being patient and bearing with one another because I think that's probably the best way to describe marriage. (laughs) These young couples will be before me and they'll be full of all these romantic ideals. And I love that. And I don't want to derail them from, from all those feelings on a day such as their wedding day. But the reality is this is the beginning of each and every day living with one another all the time. And then you will be well aware of those things in your spouse that bother you or the weaknesses that they have or the things that drive you crazy. Things like leaving the toilet seat up all the time. Or maybe a spouse takes 10 to 15 minutes too long to get ready to go out on the date every single time. Perhaps like me this morning, <laughs> Karen had to wait for me to find my keys because I lost them again, even though we had a place we needed to be right here at a specific time. My fault, my bad. Sorry, Karen. Or maybe your spouse snored all night long and you feel very tired the next day. Whatever the case may be, in marriage and in family, when you live together with someone all the time, their weaknesses become apparent. So bearing with one another becomes important. It is no less true in the context of our church family. The unity we have been gifted calls us to accept each other, warts, foibles, and all. Do we make room for that here in our family? Now, the unity of the Spirit is given to us by the Spirit, but it's also held together by the bond of peace. God gifts it to us, asks us to take care of it, but is still part. He is still invested in making sure that that we do stick together. 
So he doesn't just say, take good care of it, bye, I'll see you next time. No, he, he is with us. He holds us together in this bond of peace. And what that means for us is that what holds us together is stronger than that which tears us apart. When we have weakness, when we have conflict, when we just do life together and it isn't perfect, there will always be things that seek to tear us apart. True unity isn't avoiding those things. It's about leaning into a power that is greater to hold us together. Paul goes on to to talk about this power and it's displayed through all the oneness language that we see followed here in Ephesians. We We are one body. This picture of unity within diversity. I want to hold on to that image. We're going to unpack it a little bit more in a bit. We have one spirit. The same spirit that gifted us this unity is now the bond of peace that holds us together. We have one hope. We are all hope in our salvation through Christ alone. We have one Lord. And when we see this title Lord in Paul's writings, it's always referring to Jesus. And we have one baptism. This is a wonderful reminder for us today. Even here, we had two uh, people from the same family, different people got baptized with different modes, but one baptism in Jesus Christ, truly together. And not just baptism in Jesus Christ here at Stony Brook, but baptism into the faith in Jesus with all other believers, past, present, and future. And then Paul leaves by reminding us that we have one God and Father of all, which shows not just this equality and togetherness that we have in Jesus Christ and through the Spirit and through the Father. We have all three members of the Trinity here in this passage, but it's also a reminder of the power of the bond holding us together. And so we ought never to think that the the divisive issue is bigger than the God that holds us together. If we believe that, then we believe something wrongly. And we ought never to turn things around backwards. And that's when we get in trouble. I'm reminded of when I, when I build a train set with my sons. And I, I appreciate doing this. We'll take those wooden tracks and we'll make this, this figure eight or something that's maybe a little more complex if I'm feeling in the mood for it. And then we, we set up this beautiful course here in my basement. And then we'll put the trains together. And these toy trains are all connected with magnets. And when they're oriented the correct way, these magnets will attract and they'll stick together And then you can make a long train and take it all the way over that track. But when things are oriented the wrong way, when the priorities shift, when that train car is turned around, now those very same forces repel each other and the train can't go in the same direction. So we need to maintain this unity, maintain our focus, and maintain our trust that the power of God is here holding us together is much more significant than even those things that seek to tear us apart. There's one more picture that I think is important for us to to have a somewhat complete understanding of what unity looks like in the church. And that's uh, this um, notion of the church as a body of Christ. Something that came up just in Ephesians 4, but is spoken of more fully in 1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to read for you from that chapter, starting in verse 21. This is again more writing of Paul. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor. And our unpresentable parts are the treated with greatest modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. No division but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 
so what does this picture or analogy of the church as a body do for us, help us understand in the context of unity? Well, I think we need to know that the sum is greater than the parts. We can't have a head that does their own thing and a feet that does their own thing and eyes that do their own thing. That just never works. All the other parts of the body require the other parts of the body in order to function well. And so if you're wondering what a good biblical argument is of, of giving church a second chance, even when it's hurt before, the truth is we need to do this because we can accomplish more as a team than we can as individuals. We do more for the kingdom of God and his glory together than we could each do on our own. And so if it were true that our relationship with God was exclusively individual, then you would never need to give church a second chance. But our relationship with God is not exclusively individual. It's never been something meant for us to keep to ourselves or experience only on our own. The call is clear. Our beliefs need to be taken to the world from that time that Jesus gave his initial followers that great commission to go into the ends of the earth with the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are his last words before he ascended into heaven. It has always been a necessary part for our life as Christians to follow that call. And if that call is necessary, then it's also necessary for us to find a team in which we can help live that out in obedience and effectiveness. The sum is greater than the parts. We accomplish way more for God as a team than we do on our own. So anyone have uh, plans around 5 o'clock, 5.30 tonight? Right. There's a bit of a game going on. It's the Grey Cup. And I was told that the Bombers are in it for the fourth season in a row, right, which hasn't happened since the Eskimos in the late 70s and early 80s. What would make a team so successful year in and year out? Well, the Bombers are not going into this big game without some question marks. Some of their best players are injured, and they may or may not be able to play in the big game. And so one of the reporters asked Kenny Lawler, another star receiver, why he's confident even if these players can't play. Listen to his response. I think it's important. Lawler says, I'm here with my guys, right? I'm here with the gang, and I'm here with my coaches. I'm here with the organization. That's what has me confident. I believe that everyone on this team is like-minded. We know what we've got to do. We've got to play by our pillars. Lawler says, I'm not worried about a few guys being out because we are together. We have the same mind. We have the same goal. We all know individually what we need to do, and I trust my brothers to do that. And then together as a team, we can accomplish great things. It doesn't guarantee them a victory, but I think it gives us an insight into professional sports. What is, what is the margin for victory? What is razor thin, so many good players, so many talented teams. What's the, what's the margin of victory? It is a mindset of truly believing that you accomplish more together as a team than you do as an individual. That is the same idea that Paul is trying to paint with his picture of the body as the church of Christ. And it is the same picture that we get when we watch a big game like we do this afternoon. But of course, it's not just about being effective and accomplishing much. It's also about being aware of who else is in the body with us. It's about being aware that everything we do affects the whole team or the whole body. So if one member suffers, then all suffer together. If one member is honored, then all rejoice together. How we live our lives doesn't just affect us, it affects those around us. And particularly when it comes to living in unity, it affects our church and our expression of faith. 
I want to um, give you one more passage to, to be mindful of as we wrap up this morning. That's Galatians 5, verses 13 to 15. And uh, in Galatians 5, Paul is talking specifically about the freedom we have in Christ. And he says, this is how we should use this freedom. For we you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed, consumed by one another. So according to Paul and according to Scripture throughout the entire length and breadth of this book, from the beginning to the end of God's word, there's really, freedom is defined in one way. And Paul says we have two options to use this freedom now that we've been given in Christ. We're no longer slaves to the law. We're now no longer slaves to sin. And we're no longer slaves to ourselves. We can, we can use this freedom in Jesus differently. And the first option to exercise this freedom is to serve one another through love to maintain unity, to live out this humility that he described also in Philippians. We need to understand, church, that the Bible never, ever, ever defines freedom as personal autonomy. Biblical freedom is not about doing what we believe is right or what we want to do in any situation. Biblical freedom is now the opportunity to set ourselves aside and serve others, just as humility was defined as placing others above ourselves. One of the ways that I think this is shown is, is displayed through loyalty to the local church that God has called you to. Even when the going gets tough, even when conflict arises, even when there are, there's things that are seeking to tear you apart, are you willing to stay? Are you willing to be part of the solution? Are you willing to look for a place to serve and show this commitment and loyalty? The other alternative to using our freedom is to serve ourselves. And as Paul describes it, to go on to bite and devour one another. This is the freedom utilized for self-fulfillment at the expense of other people around us. And the end result will be destroying the gift of unity that we have been given. Or as Paul describes it, we will be consumed by one another if we look out for ourselves. I think this is often displayed in becoming consumeristic with church. So as soon as it's uncomfortable or doesn't meet your needs, I'm not sure why you're all here, but you know that there are 50 other churches within a 20-minute driving distance of Stony Brook Fellowship. And if you want, you can just pick and choose as church serves you. But then I think we're straying from what has been defined as unity and as freedom in Christ. How will you choose to exercise your Christ-given freedom? So you're sitting there, you're thinking, okay, pastor, this is great, but are you saying that when I start going to one local church, that's a life sentence, like I can never leave? I know many of you have left the church in the past couple of years. You're saying I should go back? Well, I do believe that sometimes leaving a local church um, body can be the best situation and the best alternative if you leave for the right reasons. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that you should never leave to run away from unresolved conflict and you should never ever leave to run away from accountability. There's been a few times in my pastoral experience, most significantly with husbands who are about to leave their wives, in which we have come in as pastors and as friends and as elders, and we've gathered around them and say, we love you, but this is a harmful way to go. This is not God-honoring. This is not the way that God wants you to live. And instead of listening to that, they will say, I will just leave and go somewhere where they do not ask the same thing of me. There's this leaving of accountability. There's this leaving when the church is trying to operate as God has asked it to operate. So that is a poor reason to leave a local church. And yet there are times when relationships break, 
when hurt and trauma is occurred, when you feel completely disconnected, or when you experience core theological differences that won't be resolved. And I believe it is okay to use your freedom to leave that local church and find a place where your family can spiritually thrive. But the point I'd really like to make as we conclude is that I believe unity can be maintained even as you leave a church. Unity is not just about staying in one spot the whole time. When you leave well, unity, as defined by Scripture, can be maintained even if you leave. That means you need to resolve any conflict that is lingering before you go. As far as it is up to you, make sure that you leave in a right relationship with the people, that you've uh, um, asked for forgiveness, offered forgiveness, done as much as you can to reconcile. Leave well with the relationships behind you. Carry forward a respect for those that you were in conflict with, acknowledging that they are also imperfect sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not speak ill for them when you go elsewhere. And remember that the unity that you have been given is not just for the local church, but for the entire body of Christ. So when you leave well, when you leave well, it ensures that you are still playing on the same team with the same spirit and the same goal. And in that, we can find a place that suits our context, not so that it suits us, so that, we can, uh, that, we, that it caters to us, but that we can thrive together. And we can find this unity that God has given us for a particular mission and purpose and goal. And then we can play together as a team, accomplishing all that God desires for us. So why give church a second chance? What happens when a place that's designed to be unified shows itself to be divisive? We give it a second chance because we are never meant to live out our faith on our own. That we accomplish more for God's kingdom together. And in this way, we can thrive and see other people come into saving faith of Jesus Christ. Let's pray once more. God, it has been a good Sunday morning. It's been good to hear the testimonies of how you've been at work in the life of Sheldon and Carrie and Josiah. I thank you for the profession of faith and the step of baptism that we saw Carrie and Josiah take. We celebrate with them. God, may we be a true church family to rally around them as a family and support them, not just them, but all those who are connected as members and congregants here at Stony Brook Fellowship. God, may we be a group of people who are dedicated to taking care of the unity that you have given us. May we rely on you to be stronger than the things that tear us apart. And may we recognize that we accomplish so much more for you when we work together. God, may you be with us each and every step of the way as we seek to live out these truths and these goals. We pray it in your name. Amen.